This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello everyone. Oh, that's loud. Thank you so much for coming. It's wonderful to see such a sold-out audience for this incredible author. My name is Afwa Hirsch. I am one of the guest selectors at this year's Edinburgh International Book Festival. So it's been my absolute joy and privilege to be able to curate part of the programme and to convene a number of sessions around the themes of identity. And this is one of the highlights for me because the author I'm with today is Dr. Miranda Kaufman. She is the author of Black Tudors, which is one of those rare books that has quite a simple title, yet one which actually educates you just by having read it. Because I, I think like many people, was not aware that black Tudors were a thing until I first came across Miranda's work. And Miranda's work is extensive, as well as being an author. She is incredibly active in the black British history community. I first came across her when I was researching my book because of the work she does organizing uh, what's happening in black British history, which is a really seminal conference that brings together other experts, academics, researchers looking at new developments, new research in this field. She is a senior research fellow at the University of London's Institute of Commonwealth Studies, and she is also someone you may recognise from appearing in the media. She's often on Sky News, BBC. Once. Uh, Al Jazeera. <laughs> Al Jazeera. And she has also written for The Times, for The Guardian, minutes. and BBC History Magazine. And she's also very modest, as you can see. No, no. See. Uh, my Sky News experience, I spent ten times as long in the makeup that's, chair. That's I, I was on standard. screen for three minutes, and they spent half an hour trying to get rid of my eye bags. So I was so nervous, I couldn't sleep the night before. Right, so Miranda, like, your, bit's round, your bit's coming up. Your bit's coming up. This is my introduction. So, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for the wonderful Miranda Kaufman. Um, Thank you. Right. And, and so, hang on, Miranda. Miranda's, yeah. as you can see, it's, it's not Raring going to be to a go. dull session. I've never, <laughs> never had such a lively introduction before. Um, just to give you a sense of the structure, Miranda's going to start with a reading for up around 10 minutes. And we will then have a conversation and we'll then open up to the audience. I'm always really keen to bring you in, to bring you into the conversation, give you space and time to ask your questions. So I will endeavor to get in as many as possible. Um, so I'll try and leave the last 15 to 20 minutes for questions. So do be thinking about that as you go along and make the most of this opportunity to ask Miranda about your work, uh, her work yourself. So I'd without love to further hear about ado, your work too. <laughs> it's going to be really hard to get Miranda <laughs> to talk. You know. um, I'm going to hand this over yeah, and nice. Miranda's going to do her reading. Yeah, I made the mistake of not bringing a copy of my own book to, to Edinburgh with me. Uh, I kind of assumed it would be in the gift shop and it is, but in paperback and it's much nicer to read from a hardback. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, right. Can't see, can you bring the lights down a bit? I can't see anybody. Oh, well, never mind. I suppose you're here to see me. Right. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, I've been told to read the introduction um, to Black Tudor, so here we go. In April 1645, Sir John Winter burnt his home to the ground rather than see it fall into parliamentary hands. Whitecross Manor, built at the zenith of the Tudor age, had been destroyed by the Civil War that marked the nadir of the following century. The Winter family featured the sorts of characters that traditionally appear in Tudor history books. Sir William Winter commanded the vanguard in the fight against the Spanish Armada, and his son, Sir Edward, sailed with Sir Francis Drake. 
the Reformation unleashed by Henry VIII had forced the family to practice their Catholic faith in secret. But Whitecross Manor was also the scene of an unknown episode of Tudor history. So it was there in the last decade, I think my microphone's coming off me here, but anyway, it was there in the last decade of Elizabeth I's reign that a black Tudor known as Edward Swarthy, alias Negro, whipped an Englishman named John Guy. Despite the insatiable appetite for all things Tudor, from raunchy television series to bath ducks modelled as Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and I'm afraid I've brought a prop, uh, <laughs> I didn't have a Henry VIII, but I did meet Stuart <laughs> earlier outside the author's yurt. So this is the kind of thing I mean. In, if you go to the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, uh, you can buy this but Henry VIII version and also an Anne Boleyn version. So this is Stuart. I've been reliably informed that this tartan is the Stuart tartan. So he's going to join us for the rest of the reading. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> so despite all this, the existence of the black Tudors is little known. The popular concept, as dramatised in the opening ceremony of the London Olympics in 2012, is that people of African origin first arrived in England when the Empire Windrush docked at Tilbury in 1948. It's quite a jolt to consider that there could have been Africans in the crowd gathered at those very docks when Elizabeth I galvanised her troops to face the Spanish Armada 360 years earlier. There were Africans present at the royal courts of Henry VII, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I and James I, and in the households of famous Tudors, including Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir Francis Drake, William Cecil, Lord Burley, and his son Robert, and across England from Hull to Truro. There were also some in Edinburgh. Uh, black Tudors played fascinating roles in the famous stories of the Mary Rose and the Golden Hind, as well as in a host of other untold stories like the whipping at Whitecross Manor. Once people learn of the presence of Africans in Tudor England, they often assume their experience was one of enslavement and racial discrimination. This attitude is neatly summarised by the only three entries in the Guardian Black, Black History timeline for the period. 1562, first English slave trade expedition. 1596, Elizabeth I expels Africans. And 1604, Shakespeare and Othello. That's it. It is true that John Hawkins masterminded the first English transatlantic slaving voyages in the 1560s, but he was, in an awful sense, ahead of his time. After his final voyage returned in disarray in 1569, the English did not take up the trade again in earnest until the 1640s. Elizabeth I did not expel Africans from England in 1596. Rather, her Privy Council issued a limited license to an unscrupulous merchant named Caspar van Senden, who was only allowed to transport individuals out of England with their master's consent, a consent that he utterly failed to obtain. And although much has been written on the question of racism in Shakespeare's Othello, we mustn't forget that it was a work of fiction designed to entertain and so must be set alongside archival evidence of how Africans were treated in England's churches, households and law courts. 
The misconceptions surrounding the status of black Tudors are part of a wider impression that any African living outside Africa before the mid-19th century, be it in Europe or the Americas, must have been enslaved. When most of us think of a slave, the image that appears in our mind is of an African. There is more than enough visual material to draw upon from films such as 12 Years a Slave and television series such as Roots, to the exhibits at museums such as the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool and the London Sugar and Slavery Gallery at the Museum of London Docklands. Often, the first and only mention of Africa in the school curriculum is when children are taught about the slave trade. They see Africans reduced to one of a series of commodities trading in a triangle, packed into ships in chains. Equal attention is not given to the extensive history of Africa before the Europeans arrived there and to examples of collaboration between Europeans and Africans or to the free Africans living in Europe. Not all slaves were African. The word slave itself comes from Slav, referring to the Slavonic peoples of Eastern Europe, who were enslaved in great numbers by the Holy Roman Emperor Otto the Great and his successors from the 10th century onwards. And more than a million white Europeans were enslaved in North Africa between 1530 and 1780, having been captured from the shores of England, Ireland, France, Spain and Portugal by the Barbary pirates. Contemporary concerns naturally shape the questions we ask about our past. It is difficult for us in the 21st century to push aside the nationalist myth of the Tudors created by 19th century imperialists and imagine an England before the emergence of the British Empire. Tudor England was a small, relatively weak kingdom on the edge of Europe, which had not yet experienced the full horrors of the transatlantic slave trade and colonial plantation slavery. These abominations, alongside the imperialism and scientific racism that followed, cast their shadows across almost every discussion of the history of Africans in Britain. Today, immigration and the question of whether institutional racism is endemic to society bedevil political discourse. These issues may be the source of our questions, but they cannot be allowed to shape our conclusions about the past. The answers are complex, but the questions that most commonly spring to mind about the Black Tudors are simple. Why and how did they come to England? How were they treated? What were their lives like? To understand how and why Africans came to England, we must look to the dramatic developments going on in the wider world. In a century dominated by the Spanish and Portuguese, England was small fry on the global stage. Following Columbus's discovery of the Americas in 1492, the Iberian powers carved up the world between them in the Treaty of Tordesillas, I've never had to say that word, I've only written it, <laughs> in 1494. Spain laid claim to the new world of South America and the Caribbean, while Portugal looked to Africa and the East Indies. Their empires were united from 1580 under the rule of Philip II. Strangely enough, it was the death of the young Portuguese king, Don Sebastian, on African soil at the Battle of Alcazar in 1578 that allowed Philip of Spain to annex the Portuguese crown and become the dreaded uni universal monarch, establishing a global dominion on which the sun never set. 
The Portuguese had been the first Europeans to visit Africa en route to India in the 15th century. They brought the first enslaved Africans to Europe in 1444. From then, a substantial black population developed across southern Europe, with smaller numbers appearing in the more northerly parts of the continent. By 1502, the transatlantic slave trade had begun, and over the next century, more than 370,000 Africans would be transported to the Spanish Americas. With people of African origin scattered across the early modern world, black Tudors could arrive in England not only directly from Africa, but also from Europe, the Americas, and places in between. The fact that they had often travelled through the Iberian world is reflected in names such as Catalina or Diego, Understanding the world of the black Tudors means becoming familiar with the 16th century mindset and its ideas about religion, politics, life and death, so very different from our own. When the black Tudors encountered Tudor Englishmen, they found a people who, though certainly xenophobic on occasion, were deeply curious about the world beyond the seas. Most Englishmen and women knew little or nothing of the world beyond their parish boundary. A stranger was simply someone from outside the parish. Tudors were far more likely to judge a new acquaintance by his or her religion and social class than by where they were born or the colour of their skin, though these categories did on occasion intersect. How Africans were treated by the church tells us a lot about where they stood in Tudor England. This was a deeply religious society in which life after death was no abstract ideal, but the foundation of daily life. Death was impossible to ignore. High child mortality rates and a range of gruesome, incurable diseases conspired to impose an average life expectancy at birth of just 38 years. Was a black Tudor's acceptance into a parish community through the rituals of baptism, marriage and burial an effacement of African identity? Or was the promise of eternal life the greatest gift a Christian society could bestow? Social class governs society. Everyone, from the king, who ruled by divine right, through the aristocracy to the gentry, yeomen and husbandmen, down to the lowliest vagrant, occupied a particular space in the great chain of being. When Africans arrived in England as ambassadors, they were treated as such, but when they arrived aboard a captured ship, they found themselves at the bottom of the pile. Those who had skills, such as musicians, sailors or craftsmen, fared better. In many ways, their lives were no worse than those of the vast majority of Tudors, nasty, brutish and short. But this was the result of having no social standing, not of having dark skin. In 1772, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield heard the landmark case of James Somerset, an African whose former master wished to transport him forcibly to Jamaica for sale. One of the lawyers defending him cited as precedent a court ruling from 1569. In the same year that Hawkins's final slaving venture returned, it had been pronounced that England was too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. Somerset's lawyer argued that the plain inference from it is that the slave was become free by his arrival in England. The idea that setting foot on English soil conferred freedom was so widespread in the Tudor period that it reached the ears of Juan Galof, a 40-year-old Wolof from West Africa, 
enslaved in a Mexican silver mine belonging to one Francisco Genoves. In 1572, he told an English sailor named William Collins that England must be a good country, as there were no slaves there. His conclusion, like the knowledge that Edward Swarthy whipped John Guy in Elizabethan Gloucestershire, confounds modern assumptions about the lives of Africans in Tudor England. For all who thought they knew the Tudors, it is time to think again. Thank you so much, Miranda, and I think that gives you all a real flavour of the book, which is the product of incredibly detailed research. Just tell us about how you wrote the book and the characters that you chose. Well, it was quite a convoluted process because it sort of all started in an Oxford lecture in spring 2004 when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do my doctorate on, and it was the lecture about... Tudor trade, and they sort of mention in passing that the Tudors started trading to Africa in the middle of the 16th century, which was news to me. And, you know, with all the arrogance of a 21-year-old, I thought I knew the Tudors. You know, I'd done them at school, I'd done them at university, I'd watched all the films, I'd read the novels. You know, I thought I knew it all, because you do when you're 20, don't you? But, um, yeah, and then I was, like, utterly jolted out of my complacency and started reading around it and then found this reference to there being Africans in England, in Elizabethan England. And I was just blown away. And, but there wasn't anything in the secondary literature. There were no big books about it. So I was like, right, well, I need to you know, put on my detective hat and start tracking this stuff down. And, and just before you tell us about the characters, it, you mentioned this in the introduction, but it is a real paradox, isn't it, that we are quite obsessed with the Tudors. I mean, my daughter, the first thing she learnt about English history in school was Henry VIII's wives, you know, and it's something that kind of permeates the popular imagination. There's a kind of romantic relationship with the Tudor past. Why do we love the Tudors so much yet have such a selective memory about them? Well, I think it's something that applies to history as a whole, that for a long time, history is, popular history has been dom dominated by sort of gr the great man school of history and a lot of the times we look what we learn we only learn about kings and queens we don't learn about ordinary people so it it's not really i don't think it's really a kind of racial thing it's more we don't know about anyone apart from, unless they sort of fought a war or caused a reformation or you know and i think i do think i think the kind of personal family story of the tudor dynasty is just so entertaining and gripping you know it's got it all it's got sex it's got beheadings it's got you know it's got everything it's got difficult father daughter relationships you know uh i must confess growing up i, I did kind of associate henry vapes with my dad who is also <laughs> fat with a beard uh, <laughs> and obviously the red hair is tribute to elizabeth I. but um uh, yeah i just think that particular story and then the reformation which is just such a huge seismic shift uh, in our national story, those, uh, you know, that, that, that the royal story and the religious story are just such big events that it absorbs all our attention and just general Tudor social history we don't know very much about. And that's only kind of, I think, from the 70s onwards that historians, academic historians, really turn their attention to social history in a big way and women's history as well, because of course. You know, the stories of Tudor women, are very, uh, unless they're a queen, are very rarely told. So I think it's part of the kind of shift from, of history from great men to social history 
that has begun to bring these stories out. But again, it's what questions do we ask of the past? And when we start asking questions about, uh, about race, about diversity, uh, then we can find these stories. But they're not that easy to find. I mean, you ha I went through a lot of parish registers and old legal documents written in secretary hand. Um, it's not kind of, it's not that accessible, it wasn't that accessible. And the characters my you chose this book, yeah. so Miranda tells the story through the lives of, is it 10? 10, 10 people, 10 people of African heritage living in Tudor, England and Scotland. And you, um, you mentioned that there were, there, you know, there were more people you could have chosen, but these were the 10 who had more than the simple kind of entry in a birth or death register. They'd mm -hmm. been involved in a litigation, so their name was in a court record, or you know, they, there was something that gave you more to go on. Yeah. So who, just give the audience a sense of who the characters that tell this story are. Yeah, I mean, just to say that, yeah, in the course of my research, I found over 360 individuals present in Britain between 1500 and 1640. I've kind of cheated with the title because there's definitely some early Stuarts in there, but um, that didn't work with the title. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I can kind of get away with it. I think I could say they were born in the Tudor period because uh, they only got up to about 1625. Um, but so, I mean, there's all sorts of... So chapter one is about John Blank, who's kind of the poster boy for black Tudor history. On the front cover, uh, that's a sort of artistic interpretation based on the only portrait we know of of an African in Tudor England. Uh, he appears in the Westminster tournament role of 1511. It's very small, but um, it's yeah. in one of the illustrations. It's too small. <laughs> What I'd like is for them to get a reproduction, because the original's too fragile, but to get a reproduction of this 60-foot-long vellum document and put it on permanent display at Hampton Court in the orangery opposite Mantega's Triumph of Caesar. So if you know anyone who can make that happen, <laughs> come and chat to me after the show. But, um, so yeah, so there's the royal trumpeter who's relatively visible, uh, and we've got ten other characters. Uh, there is a salvage diver who worked on the Mary Rose. There is um, Diego who circumnavigates the globe with Francis Drake, although he, he dies three quarters of the way through the voyage, unfortunately. Uh, we have Edward Swarthy, who I mentioned in the introduction, who is working as a porter in Gloucestershire when his master orders him to whip a fellow servant. And this guy, John Guy, that he whips, goes on to become one of the first governors of Newfoundland. So, yeah, I need to write to the historians in Newfoundland and get them to invite me to, to Canada for a, a lecture <laughs> on that, because they don't know. There was a biography published of him a couple of years ago, and his early life was just not known, and they sort of assume he was in Bristol, growing up in Bristol. But I found in this court case that he was actually working in the household of this Gloucestershire gentry family. So, yeah, I need to write to them. Anyway, there's, uh, there are some women as well. We've got Mary Phyllis, who was from Morocco and is baptised in London in 1597. Uh, we have Anne Cobby, who is uh, a, an African prostitute, and the, the record says that uh, men would pay uh, vastly over the odds to sleep with her because she had such soft skin. And uh, although she, uh, she was unusual, I didn't find... Historians have previously assumed that there were a lot of African prostitutes in Tudor London and I actually only found one definite, which was her, and one possible. And actually, there's a lot more evidence of African men going to English f prostitutes, uh, which is interesting because it shows they had some kind of disposable income, apart from anything else. 
the who have I missed out? The, um. There's um, Jack. There's uh, John Anthony, who was a free wage sailor. In 1619, he goes on a voyage to Virginia. You haven't mentioned Diego. I haven't mentioned... I did, the oh. circumnavigator. Oh, sorry. Yes, I did. Yes, sorry. Uh, and uh, I really like um, the story of... I don't remember his name. <laughs> the, 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 um, the, the man from Liberia. Oh, yeah. Dedery Jakoa, yeah. who uh, is, again, baptised in London and has a, a long baptism record, which is why we know about him. Uh, and he was a prince uh, from a kingdom called River on River Sestos in modern-day Liberia. And he's brought to London by an English merchant called John Davies. He learns English with him for two years, and then he goes back to Liberia, uh, where he works as a trade factor, and we hear about him again in a letter from an East India Company merchant uh, who writes back to London saying, I've just, I've just met this guy who calls himself John Davis. So he's taken, his baptis baptismal name was John after John Davis, who was his godfather, but he's active as a trade factor in his hometown in Africa. I really, that story resonated with me because I've got Ghanaian heritage and while I am among the people who've been saying we should have a deeper understanding of the slave trade and the role slavery has played in building modern Britain, I personally don't relate to the history, but in Ghana there's a very long tradition of Ghanaians going to Britain to be educated and going back to uh, act and trade, be interpreters. I was fascinated by these kind of what we might now call returnee stories and, and there was quite a heartbreaking one of a very young man who wept every day in England. He was so miserable and homesick and then finally went home and kind of ran off into the sunset refusing to do any more trading ever again. Were you conscious that these represent a different kind of relationship between Africa and Britain that hasn't been told that we've been stuck in these particular mm. roles. You mentioned slave, you know, victim, rather than the person doing the whipping or the person going home after an education. I think, yeah, I think again, like, when we think of a slave, we think of an African. When we think of the encounter between Europeans and Africans on the African coast, the vision is of this all-powerful European merchants sort of kidnapping and seizing African bodies and making them into commodities, selling them into slavery. Uh, kind of, I suppose, the uh, story of that is Equiano's uh, autobiography. Um, and that was definitely the narrative of the 18th century. But if we're looking at the 16th century, the power dynamic is completely different, certainly for the English. The Portuguese have a more established presence, but even then, these Europeans are not all powerful. They don't have the trading forts at this point. They're showing up. They have to send gifts and homage to the local African rulers in order to be allowed to trade. Sometimes they get attacked by the Africans that they try to trade with. Uh, in one case, there's a, a shipwreck, and the, uh, the local Africans actually, who can swim, whereas Englishmen are not very good swimmers, uh, go and actually save the, the Englishmen from drowning. There are these completely different encounters with a completely different power dynamic. Uh, there's a fascinating moment in 1620 where a merchant called Richard Jobson, uh, somewhere up the Gambia River, is an, encounters an African merchant called Bako Sano. And Sano says to him, look, I've got these female slaves, would you like to buy them? And Jobson says, no, you know, we English are a people who do not trade in people of you know who share our human form or something like that and and uh, so it's complete and, and in that moment in 1620 
I mean, historians have said, oh, he's being disingenuous. But in that moment in 1620, the English are not trading in slaves. And yeah, there's just a completely different power dynamic. They're trading as equal merchants. And One of the things that provokes you to think deep, more deeply when you read this book is that we, you have to, as you said in the introduction, get into a mindset where you understand Tudor values, which place a huge emphasis on religion and the role of the church, and where there are also other kind of cultural phenomena which we don't recognize. And as you were saying, you know, this fear of water or this belief that it was bad for you to drink water. You had to drink beer all day. Well, I think it was bad for you uh, to and drink maybe water. Maybe it was bad to drink their <laughs> water. Or that the swimming was a bad idea, even if you're a sailor. And that kind of intersects with the role of Africans. I was fascinated by the story of there being an African who sal or attempted to salvage the Mary Rose because they were, they were better divers. Tell us a bit about, about th that story. And does it give us an indication that these aren't just tokenistic individuals, that they actually were kind of dispersed at all different levels of, of Tudor society. Mm. Um, so there's a great scholar in California called Kevin Dawson, who is actually a former or possibly still current scuba diver, who has just published a book um, about the wider phenomenon of, uh, of African swimmers and divers in the early modern Atlantic world. And it, yeah, it's fascinating. And you're, I mean, these days, uh, you know, you're, it's unlikely to find a black body in an Olympic swimming pool. And, you know, there's a whole, the culture has changed, and particularly in the American context, uh, not a lot of African-Americans go swimming regularly, partly because of a kind of Jim Crow legacy where white people were allowed to go swimming, but black people weren't allowed in the same pool. Uh, there are hair issues. Uh, but, but um, uh, yeah, whereas in the early modern world, completely different. The, only, you know, the people who can swim in the early modern world are Africans, specifically West Coast, Af coastal Africans, or ones who live near lakes. But uh, they can swim, they can dive, they're good at canoeing. Uh, and those skills are used across the Atlantic world. There's a place called La Margarita, uh, which is an island um, off the coast of South America where... Uh, the Spanish uh, started doing a lot of pearl diving, and the, the, the African, the divers who they use, the African divers who have learnt their skills on the African coast, but are brought to La Margarita to dive for pearls. Uh, you know, and then the, with the salvage diving again, you know, when if you had a shipwreck and there were valuable goods on board, the people you would turn to who have the necessary skills are African salvage divers, and that's what happened when the Mary Rose sunk just outside Southampton in uh, in the in the in 1545, and Henry VIII had loaded this warship with extremely valuable guns. And first of all, they try and bring the whole ship up, but then that doesn't work. So they then try to bring up the guns. And the Jack Francis, this African salvage diver, uh, who he says he's from an island off the coast of Guinea, um, you know, is the man who was there diving for these guns. And I think that tells you more broadly that if you had a skill, if you could salvage dive, there's another chapter in the book about reasonable blackman who's a silk weaver. If you have a, if a skill, then that skill can get you somewhere. You can get paid to do that thing. I guess the biggest shift for me was required to get my head around this society was the fact that it was a society before pseudoscientific racism. So the whole categorization of race was totally different. And if you approach it with our thinking about race, you just miss, you miss the plot. And you do quite a lot of work on the language explaining that, you know, not everyone who was called a Moor was a Moor. Not every reference to someone being a black man was really black, but yet there are these 
people who, you know, you, through extra evidence and extra records, you can find were of African descent. Do you think that our thinking around race and the way that it's evolved has made it harder for us to access and, and really understand the nuance of the lives of these black Judas? Because as you said, they may have encountered uh, prejudice, but it, it wasn't in such a racialized way. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we're still suffering you know, under the burden of the legacies of what happened next. Uh, you know, of the slave trade, of the slave plantations, of, you know, the, yeah, the pseudo-scientific racism that followed and the colonialism, and that's a lot of history. <laughs> uh, it's a big weight of history that we're still dealing with and not dealing with very well. Uh, and, but this is, you know, before. And, you know, you can't... You, it's, yeah, you have, it's a leap of the imagination to try and get yourself back to this place where things were different. Um, and I mean, I've been told I'm a bit idealistic on this, but I mean, I like. I think I think there was the you know, there's been a previous narrative that racial slavery was kind of inevitable and omni racism has been omnipresent since the beginning of time. And if you think that way, then I think it's really hard to imagine a future where we get past it. But if we can sort of say, well, you know, slavery has existed forever. Like the Romans had slaves. You know, there has always been slavery in society, but the racial slavery that developed as a result of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, and the plantations in the Caribbean and in the Americas was a very specific point in time where the color of your skin dictated your position in that society. And it wasn't just you know, a seven-year term, or, you know, which is a kind of biblical concept. Uh, it was for life, and it was hereditary. So your children and your children's children were all enslaved as well. And that was a specifically pernicious. Also, you're moved across the whole ocean from where your family ties were. You know, if you were enslaved somewhere in Africa in the 13th century, you'd have a chance of serving your time. Sometimes it was a, a, a punishment for petty crime or, or you were a prisoner of war, but you have a chance of serving it out buying your own freedom, going back to your family. It wasn't something that was going to affect your children necessarily. But the way that the transatlantic slave trade worked, it was like this particularly nasty, pernicious version of slavery. Uh, so if we can kind of put that kind of slavery in a box and say, well, it kind of started in the 15th century, and it kind of finished in the 19th century. It's a specific historical phenomenon that we can understand as something that happened then, but there was a before, and hopefully there can be an after. But it's complex, isn't it? Because some of the seeds were being sown in this era. You've got the chroniclers who made up these stories about this kind of, you know, wild, mythical creatures that lived in Africa. You've got people like Sir Francis Drake, who, on the one hand, doesn't conform to our ideas about, you know, a racist slave trader, but on the other hand, was involved in the first slave voyages and did terrible things to some of the black people who were in his care while working side by side with others. Mm. Do you think, as a society, we can cope with this nuance? Are we ready to start to understand it in a more sophisticated way? Depends who you're talking about. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I think I think it is difficult because we're in a soundbite world, we're in a tweeting world, a headline world, and I mean that's always my fear with with the kind of work I do that the nuance will be lost, and there is nuance, and it's not a rose. You know, 
I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. There were definitely bad things going Tell on. Tell us and about Sir Francis Drake and how you dealt with him. He's a, I mean, he's one of the characters that everybody's heard of. Mm -hmm. And most people, I think, I'm certainly educated to see him as a kind of hero. Mm. And the reality is, you know, he was a pirate. He did bad things. But he, he wasn't... Uh, he was... He, he was he it was complicated. a clear pirate. Uh, so the difference between a pi pirate and a privateer is that a privateer has a letter from the king or the queen <laughs> or the duke <laughs> to say that they can be a pirate. Uh, and, uh, but specifically, you're meant to be raiding the enemy. So the Spanish were the enemy for quite a lot of Elizabeth's reign. And he had a particular beef, didn't he? But he, he had a particular piece of paper. You know, he would tell people about his piece of paper. You know, he, 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 he reveled in entertaining the kind of Spanish and Portuguese uh, captains and things that he captured on his voyages and he would kind of sit them down and show them his treasure and his piece of paper <laughs> and his like maps of that he'd stolen from the last guy about how he was going to get to the Indies and become even more fabulously wealthy and uh, but um, in terms of a figure as a hero uh, I mean certainly it's very interesting reading about him in the Spanish archives because there he's like anything but you know he's <laughs> El Dracon and he's like the dragon like this horrible pirate who's constantly raiding uh, and it's, it's fascinating because you have he was the first Englishman to sail around the world but he so he was the first Englishman to get past the Magellan Straits at the bottom of South, Af South America and sail right the way up the other side uh, you know, past Chile and Peru and Ecuador and all the rest of it. And those Spanish settlements on that side of South America had absolutely no, and the merchant ships as well, had absolutely no kind of fortification because no enemy ship had ever showed up there. So it was incredibly easy for them to capture all these merchant ships, raid the ports, take away all his treasure because they, they, they were unprepared because um, it was very hard to get past the Magellan Straits. And... Um, so he you know, became fabulously wealthy, but and he was an enemy. You know, he was the, an anti-hero in their in their literature. Um, but in terms of our concerns, so he's related to John Hawkins, the first slave trader in Plymouth, and he. There's no evidence. There's no specific evidence for him going on the first two of the three voyages, but he is definitely on the third one, uh, and so. I think there's this sort of double think where the air of England is too pure an air for slaves to breathe in, but if you can make money from slave trading abroad, then whoopee doo, let's go for it. You know, and there, the Haw Hawkins is definitely kind of following a Spanish model. But in 1569, on his final voyage, where, which Drake is on as well, the Spanish have had enough of him interloping into their slave trade and selling to their colonies, and they, he they, the, the, um, the fleet gets attacked so badly that they have to leave 100 English sailors on the coast of Mexico. Um, but So Drake certainly wasn't kind of above the slave in, enslaving people when it suited him, uh, but his, the rest of his career is not a slave trading career. Uh, but uh, people, people have sort of taken his relationship with Diego, who he meets in Panama in 1572, and becomes Diego becomes his manservant, but also... Uh, you know, a, a, a very useful person to him because Drake's Spanish isn't very good, but Diego had been enslaved by the Spanish, so he uh, he could speak Spanish and interact with the Spaniards that they meet. Uh, but he also brokers this amazing military alliance with the Cimarrones, who were the runaway slaves who had previously been enslaved by the Spanish and set up their own settlements in the hinterland and are actually quite a strong military force in Panama in the 1570s. And the English and the Cimarrones combine in an attack on the Spanish uh, silver 
train as it's making its way on mule back across the isthmus of Panama, and that's where Drake makes his first fortune. But Diego stays with him, he's on the circumnavigation voyage, and some of Drake's biographers have kind of tried to use that to say, look, Drake wasn't racist at all, his best mate was Diego, they got on so well, and Diego, you know, Drake had no racial bias whatsoever. But then there's the story of Maria. So, obviously, yeah, Drake's treatment of Diego is great. You know, Diego can speak Spanish, he puts him in touch with the Maroons, he helps them build, he's a very good builder of temporary camps, he do, you know, when they're staying places. Uh, Maria is either given to Drake or is captured from a ship, one of these ships that he takes off the coast of South America. And the next we hear of her, well, there's some comment about how she entertains the captain and his men pirates over the long voyage between um, Mexico, uh, South America and, um, and the next landfall in the Moluccas. Um, but uh, the next we hear of her is that she's abandoned heavily pregnant on an Indonesian island called Crab Island, uh, along with two African men who've also, there were various other Africans on Drake's circumnavigation voyage. And and you know, this is something that William Camden, a contemporary historian, says that he purchased much blame for. And it's never entirely clear who the father of Maria's child was. Um, I did the maths, and technically nine months before she's dumped, she was still in Spanish, on a Spanish ship. So possibly the father could have been Spanish. Otherwise, it would be someone on Drake's ship. If it was a kind of... I don't know, what's the word, what's that, what's that American, anyway, if it was a like kind of romantic movie made of Wrong. their lives, clearly the father would have to have been Diego, uh, but, which is possible, uh, but the idea that she was it sort of shared as like the ship's bicycle seems unlikely in that it would be bad for, Drake, for Drake's um, authority if he was sharing a woman on board, so either she was Drake's alone or she was anyone's business but not not Drake I mean we don't know One it's, of the it's hard to contemplate the experience of being the only woman on board a ship of X, X numbers of men who haven't seen another woman for months but one of the things that you really portrayed was you know you you, you tell what you can find about her experience but the way other historians have dealt with it and actually the callousness with which her story had previously been described and it made me wonder how much you are challenging kind of conventional wisdom among other academic historians and, and what that experience has been like well um i mean uh, yeah i mean the most the anyone who's written the only people who've written about her are biographers of drake and i think it's a, a, a something that happens to most biographers is they tend to fall in love with their subjects and certainly like as we know like drake has this kind of long history of hagiography so you know, they want to minimise the Maria story. They want to make it sound like, oh, it was you know just a bit of fun, or like, or they or they they go with this narrative that starts actually with Drake's nephew, uh, who tells the Spanish because he gets captured and and interrogated, you know, that they were there to found a new settlement, uh, which seemed what well, you know like nice story. You know, he said, oh, we left Maria, we left these two African men, we gave them rice to plant or whatever. Uh, but yeah, then he kind of fails to mention that the island that he leave, they leave them on has no running water, um, which seems not a good thing. And uh, I mean, the English have actually were actually camped out there for quite a few weeks, so it, it's not that it couldn't sustain human life. But they had but to it, travel to another island to get water. Didn't yeah. They? So I don't think 
yeah, and they don't know who the you know if there's any hostile uh, forces in the neighbouring islands or whatever. It it's not the best place to found a new settlement, I would suggest. Um, and yeah, what, did she even su survive the childbirth? But, but yeah, I mean, nobody bothered to count how nine months back, that's for sure. Because I, I don't know if that's like the female perspective on this, but um, yeah, there's these awful throwaway lines which like, oh, well, you know, the presence of Maria helped, you know, while away the long empty hours at sea <laughs> while they crossed the Pacific. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, th I, uh, I should probably, I should probably, you know, write to one of these guys and uh, well, do you, do you invite them to my talk on the gold and the hind in October. Are you conscious <laughs> of um, challenging this kind of conventional wisdom about some of these figures and norms of the era? Because there are many places in the book where you contrast your scholarship to what's been written before and often not through the same kind of research, just assumptions that have been made in the absence of this kind of research. Mm. Like in what way? So, uh, have have has there been an, a kind of academic debate around this, or have you felt conscious of other historians kind of feeling that this challenges or changes the narrative? Um, You're very it, polite people, academic <laughs> historians, aren't you? No, sorry, <laughs> no. The collective noun for historians is an argumentation of historians. <laughs> no, I mean history fives on debate and argument, uh, but sometimes that can get a bit personal. Uh, but I haven't had any kind of really negative experiences in that way. I think bizarrely, like when I did the kind of initial literature review, many more uh, kind of scholars of English literature have written about this than actual kind of purebred historians. Um, some of them are kind of English literature background who kind of get into history because they're, in, you know, and they come to it through Othello, through questions of race in Shakespeare and other early modern literature. And then they're like, well, wait a minute, what was actually happening? Um, I mean, I, I do, uh, quite a lot of my thesis was taken up with disagreeing with uh, one of the only other, well, the only other scholar at that point to have published a book on uh, the, the Black Tudors. Uh, and he kind of uh, he kind of makes these assumptions that they must have been they must have been uh, racially discriminated against, and that they must have come to England as a result of English slave trading. Uh, and and when he kind of confronts the issue that there is no evidence of English slave trading, he's like, oh well, they were ashamed. They were so ashamed of slave trading that they just didn't write it down and they hid it. Uh, but that's, you know, when Hawkins does his slave trading, he's so proud of it, he puts it on his coat of arms. <laughs> in 1568, Hawkins gets a coat of arms and it's got a bound African on it right on the top in the crest. So they weren't ashamed of it. Um, William Camden's history of Elizabeth's reign is interesting in that it's pretty much contemporary. And he says, Drake purchased much blame for abandoning Maria on this island. Uh, yeah, so, but I mean, I, I think... Um, I think, yes, what I'm saying is that I don't think very many actual historians have actually written about this stuff. So they're kind of like, oh, this is interesting. Come and talk at my conference. <laughs> so I, I haven't really got into any. Oh, well, there was one. There was, uh, there was this TV series a while ago, and it was kind of like secret history of the Tudors. And there was this guy, I can't remember his name now, which is probably a good thing, I, uh, who was, he was sort of sitting at this old desk and he had a big skull on it and like cat flickering candles. <laughs> and he kind of starts talking about uh, this African woman who lived in Plymouth 
And we know, all we know about her is that she had various children who were baptised in St Andrew's Church, Plymouth. And it's recorded that they had, like, the one of them, it, one of them it's recorded who the father is. Um, I think one of them's a Flemish. There are various women. And, uh, but so based on this incredibly, like, one line from a parish register saying, basically saying that this African woman had had an illegit illegitimate child, he kind of embroidered around it as, like, she was a sex slave, and this guy, the guy who owned her was kind of passing her around all his friends who were interested in a bit of exotic fun. And there is no justification for that interpretation in this one line in a parish register recording a baptism. And he's just kind of gone off on one. Anyway, I wrote a blog about it, and that was fun, because he actually <laughs> commented on my blog, and we got into an extremely long-winded debate about it. So uh, check my website if you want to try and find that. But... <laughs> But it, it just kind of serves to reinforce that so much of this is new, not just for us, but within the academic community as well. Mm. On which note, I want to bring you all in. Um, so could I have a show of hands for questions, please? And we do have a roving mic here, so I will try to get to as many of you as I can. All right, that's helpful. So um, could we first have the lady in the back? Uh, yes. And uh, I'll come to the gentleman next to her next, and then you two. Yeah, thank you. And then I'll try and bring in from the sides. Would you mind keeping your questions short, if you don't mind? I'll, I'll try to get through as many as possible. Um, it's black Muslims and the influence of black um, and Middle Eastern Muslims in Elizabethan England. Because the Pope had excommunicated Henry and Elizabeth, no one in Europe, Catholic Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, which covered Spain, Portugal, what was it, Austria now, Germany, would trade. So England was scuppered for trading, but not with the Muslim countries. They had to reach out to the Muslim countries in order to trade. Okay. Um, and also, the coming and going. There was a book written a um, couple of years ago, which is very interesting. Um, can't remember the author. But anyway, it was greatly to the advantage of England at that time because Muslims were advanced in the study of medicine, elementary medicine as we know it, and also um, natural philosophy, the beginnings of science. Um, it's, it's, I was fascinated oh. by it because I, I hadn't, Thank I hadn't you. known it. Before. Do you mean Thank Jerry you. Broughton, this Oriental? No, it's a, it was a lady author. Okay. So what's your question? Well, well, do, do, you, do, you, do you have a comment <laughs> yes. on the part? On well, the right. You're saying they're, they're Christians, but... Muslims also had a, an interest in black Muslims. Uh, and yeah, so um, in the chapter about Mary Phyllis, the Moroccan woman who gets baptised in uh, Elizabethan London, uh, I go into the kind of back history of the Eng growing English relationship with Morocco. And uh, you know, the, from the first trading voyage to Morocco is in 1551, but quite soon afterwards they establish a very regular trade with Morocco it, which is quite interesting because they're importing sweet cargoes of sort of sugar and almonds and uh, molasses and the sort of thing. Uh, but they're also importing saltpeter, which is a key ingredient uh, in gum in making gunpowder. So the Earl of Leicester, who uh, becomes head of the Barbary Company, and they call Morocco Barbary, uh, takes a really deep interest in that because he's you know a hawk at the court. You know he's very keen in military intervention in the wars of religion on the continent, and he wants to know where his gunpowder is coming from. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jerry Broughton's *This Orient Isle* explains that history. Of, you know, he's not the first to write about it, but 
probably Nabil Matar is the guy to read. But um, he, you know, the, as you said, there was a strong relationship with Morocco and, and also with, with the Ottoman Empire as well through the Levant trade. Um, but the relationship with Morocco is, is really interesting. And I, I mentioned in the introduction this Battle of Alcazar that really just changes the entire kind of political uh, situation globally, actually. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, gentleman there in the blue shirt. Okay, I'll come to you after then. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yes, yeah, sorry, that wasn't thank you. a good uh, I enjoyed that. I, don't th I think you've asked this question even if both your surnames didn't have a German uh, origin, <laughs> which, is, which is this. Um, were you able to trace the descendants of all these colourful characters? Uh, I use that uh, uh, not in a uh, woman of colour way. Um, but the, the question is, how integrated did they become uh, how in, in, did they lose their visibility? Did they become integrated? Yeah, so... Is it possible um, to find out? Thank you. Uh, because a lot of them didn't even have surnames, and it also wasn't something I particularly set out to do, but n none of the ten characters have I found descendants of. But uh, I was later alerted to a man who had traced his ancestry back to an African man called Henry Jetto, who died in Worcestershire in... 1628 and was the first uh, as, as we, of we, uh, that we know black African to leave a will in Britain. Uh, so some people have managed to, trans tr to trace their ancestry back that far and I think you know with increasing interest in DNA tests um, of such as those sold by Antrestu.com you know people are discovering that they have a more mixed gene set than they thought they had. So any of you could be descended from the Black Tudors. Because you write as well, don't you, about how uh, many of these African men married English women because there yeah. were more men than women. Yeah. And there was some interracial marriage between uh, African women and English men as well. There's one example in Bristol. Um, and, and, the, and there were extramarital uh, relationships as well. So, so as you say, yeah, they do lose visibility very quickly within a couple of generations because... There were relatively so few of them, you know, a couple of hundred compared with a population of four million, I think. So, so yeah, they intermarry, they inter-non-marry, and uh, quite quickly, two or three generations down, there's no real trace visibly of, of their origin. As a result of success rather than a result of catastrophe. Well, that, that's... Yes. Well, that, I mean, that's a, a, whole, a whole other... Success, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I think a lot of work has been done as well about that there were a great, much greater number of Africans during the Georgian era who also, by the Victorian era, had kind yeah. of disappeared, you know, assimilated. Yeah. Uh, racial dilution had removed their... Right. But it is a little bit easier to trace your ancestors back to the yeah, Georgian sure. period. <laughs> so in David Olashoga's series, Black and British Have Forgotten History, he has interviews with... Um, a man who's descended from Francis Barber, who was a, the heir to Samuel Johnson's uh, estate. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's easier for if you're looking at Georgian black, black Georgian ancestors. Yes, gentleman there with the glasses. And uh, can I see any other hands so I can just get a sense of where to, I, I've got you? Uh, yes, the lady over here. Okay, thanks. You, know, you just mentioned there was uh, perhaps two or three hundred, two or three hundred people in a population of maybe four million. And earlier, I think you said your research identified perhaps 300 odd cases, three or 400, of which you concentrated on a smaller number. Do you have any feeling for actual numbers? Because presumably it must be very difficult to establish at all um, what the origin of anybody was in those days because of a lack of contemporary sources now available. Yeah, I, uh, 
I mean, I'd, I'd be wary of trying to come up with some kind of number. Um, this other writer uh, who's written about this sort of took like this strange mathematical calculation that, that, that what he'd actually found must be kind of 10%. He basically times everything by 10, <laughs> uh, you know, based on some kind of population historian person uh, you know, that he footnoted. It just seemed a bit skeptical. weird to me. Well, I mean, who, I don't know. I think that, I mean, I looked through, so most of the numbers that we know of come from parish registers. Um, parish registers only get begun being kept um, under Thomas Cromwell, and only really a lot of them only survived from the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, if at all. Um, but uh, I did. I looked through all the London registers, all the Bristol registers, all the there's not very many Southampton ones that survived Plymouth. I, I looked at all the sort of southern port towns, which seemed to me the places that you would be most likely to find African immigrants and. But, you know, I'd love for more people to look through all the other parish registers in the country and see what they can find. I think I, I found enough to demonstrate that it would be worth looking for more. Um, and my sort of hope for that is that um, increasingly these sources are becoming digitised. And once that happens, and that's partly because of the weight of interest in family history in general, uh, but once that happens, then it will be an awful lot easier to search them. Uh, for ethnic descriptors such as Blackamoor, and then it would be quite quick to, to see what else there is. Thank you very much. Yep, last two quickly, if I can, gentleman here, and then the lady over here. Hi, uh, quick question. Uh, in your introduction, you mentioned Othello, and yeah. you said, oh, we shouldn't think of Othello as being authoritative, authoritative right. because it's a story. Yeah. Can you give an example of how it conflicts with what you regard the reality to be? But the Othello, how it how it isn't wouldn't necessarily be a representation of what was going on, because you're saying discount it. I'm not saying sense. I think it needs further exploration. I'm actually in the process of um, a funding application. I'm hoping to sp that part of that will be a PhD student to compare what I've found with the kind of stereotypes that you get in the literature of the time. Um, well, I mean. I, Firstly, I think in Othello, some of the sort of most vituperative language is actually in the mouths of the villains of the piece. Uh, you know, like a black ram is tapping your white you, is I think uh, Iago saying that. And, and so, and, uh, you know, and at the beginning of the play, he's, he's you know, an accepted and respected character within Venetian society. I suppose the most sort of racist element of the play is this way that he switches subtly in one scene from being a loving husband to a jealous monster. And that's tied up with stereotypes about African men in general. And, uh, and so, uh, but you know, I found evidence of you know, happy marriages, happy interracial marriages. In, I, I've written a, a, an article about interracial marriages. And uh, yeah, so I think the reality was was different. I was also quite heartened because I saw The Winter's Tale for the first time recently. And in that story, I think you know, an a white character also has this random moment of transformation from loving husband to jealous, uh, angry man, uh, and like murders his wife or something. So, so it's actually, yeah, a fellow shouldn't be read in, it's often read in isolation by people th interested in race, but actually, yeah, that comparison with The Winter's Tale kind of made me feel a bit happier because it meant that it was just a dramatic device rather than uh, anything else. Thank you very much for the question. The last question, thanks. 
Uh, do you think that contemporary white historians have a responsibility to undo the kind of whitewashing of the past? Thank you. <laughs> Great question. How long have we got? <laughs> um, um, I think historians of any origin have a responsibility to the truth. You know, we have to dig and find what actually happened as close as we can get to it. And, um, you know, we can't, we can't leave our own identity at the door, but... Um, do you, do you think that there, there has been... I'm not do even you, do sure you agree with the idea that there's been a kind of erasure or whitewashing of the black stories? Uh, now, what is this? There's an African proverb, you know, unless, until the lion has his own historian, you know, the hunter's version will always be the, what, the written history. I think um, that's a really bad remembering. <laughs> anyway, uh, but... Um, I don't think, I, re I don't really feel that historians have specifically set out to whitewash or erase bits of our history. I think it's more about the questions that they ask. So for years, I think they were just obsessed with high political and religious history. And they just weren't interested in anything else. Uh, and I think now we are interested and we're finding this stuff because it's there and you just have to look for it and ask those questions. Um, that's my sort of general feeling on it. Um, and so it's been hidden, but not necessarily purposefully hidden. And we hope it won't be hidden anymore. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. You've been a wonderful audience. And thank you to Miranda Kaufman. Thank you. And Miranda is going to be signing copies of Black Judas in the signing tent now. So I urge you to buy it. It's such a rich book and uh, ask Miranda to sign it for you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.